0: listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I am not your host for today's episode. Instead, you're still going to hear from the guys as they continue in part two of their series where they're talking about sin. But instead, I got a couple of things I want to get to you before you get to the episode. So if you haven't been paying attention, or maybe you have, the AC Leadership Summit is heading to Ontario. Super exciting. We're going to be going to Muskoka, Ontario, specifically at Camp Madiba. This is going to be held from May 5th to the 7th, and here's the great news. We are just about at capacity, but fellas, fellas, gentlemen, this one is for you. We have spots left for the guys that we are hoping to fill up, okay? Okay. We are going to be closing registration very, very soon because we need to get all the numbers into our wonderful staff out at Camp Madiba. So if you don't fill that up, then we are going to continue looking at our waiting list and fill those spots with some of the ladies that have been so eager and so attentive to getting everything done. So if you have been wanting to come to the Leadership Summit, now is your opportunity. Head to our website, ApologeticsCanada.com leadership summit forward slash, and click on the Eastern Apologetics Canada. It's the yellow logo. Okay, you got that? Fellas, can I counter you? I'm just assuming that that pause was enough time for you to go and look at the website. But moving on, the next announcement I have is an event that's actually coming up within an organization called Logos. Now, some of you listeners may have Logos or are thinking about getting Logos, for those who don't know what it is, it is an intuitive Bible study program, and they actually have a brand new version coming out, calling it the Logos 10. And for those of you 90s babies or whatever, you remember Windows XP coming out, and it was super, super exciting. So this is going to be an event called More and better Bible study with the all-new Logos 10 being held with Andy Steiger and Scott Lindsay, a representative of Logos. It is going to be on Tuesday, May 2nd at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information and to pay attention to any updates that we might have, please register, head to ApologeticsCanada.com and look at our events page, and we'll have everything for you there as well on our socials. We will be promoting it there as well, okay? Clears mud. Perfect. Now for the podcast. Enjoy.
1: For the love of God, love people. Hey, everybody! Welcome to part two of Understanding Sin, brought to you by AC Podcast. I'm here uh, back together with Andy and Wes. Here, welcome, gentlemen.
2: Thank you. I feel left out this morning you, or today. You guys got, the, you guys got the AC swag and I, I guess I just didn't get the memo. Yeah. yeah. Representing yeah. the hoodie, the hat. I just need, I don't I just need, the I t-shirt. just don't
3: have very many clothes if I'm honest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I don't wear
3: this sweater on purpose. I just don't, I don't really have that many clothes to wear.
1: Yeah. So for those of you who are listening to this on audio, uh, Wes is wearing "Love God, Love People" black hoodie, and I'm wearing the black hat that says "Love God, Love People." Andy's got nothing, yeah, so I mean but you know what? Left out. My
2: kids wear wear the swag uh, almost daily to school. It's kind of like the same line where you know kids, especially teenagers, just wear the same thing over and over again. So it's great. AC's getting lots of, uh, lots of publicity. Lots of <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I was repping out. Now yeah. it's I have an
3: apologetics career question for you guys. Uh, how okay. do you describe what you do to people who aren't Christians <sighs> or even who are Christians? When someone says like, hey, Steve, what what do you do for work? What do you tell people?
1: Well, I just give them the word apologetics straight up. I I work for an organization that deals in worldview training and we call it apologetics. And the way I explain it to people is, listen, I've grown up in the church and I think many people like myself can appreciate You know, when I say that it seemed to me like the church has excelled at telling me what to believe, but not why. So we're in the business of, you know, exploring and teaching and discipling people to know the why behind the what of our faith. um, And then trying to apply that to all areas of life. That's kind of how I do it. I know it's not the most succinct way of saying it, but I think it gets the point across. That's pretty good.
2: Yeah, not... Not too too many times of doing that do you just uh, start to die inside because it's it's a lot to try to explain. So for me, my simple way of explaining it is when people ask, which happens a lot, is because everybody in the West will ask you, what do you do? right it's uh, it's one of the ways that we define each other which is which is challenging for a lot of us in ministry because you just feel judged immediately and so sometimes it can be difficult for people who aren't in it to appreciate why we kind of almost feel this hesitancy because you feel like you need to give this big, long, you know, explanation. At any rate, I'll often just tell people that, uh, I run a nonprofit that's involved in Christian education.
3: Yeah. That that's, mm-hmm. if
2: I want to do it really fast and simple, that's what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah.
3: My mother-in-law texted me the other day. She said they were out for dinner and someone asked what I do. <laughs> she was like, what, Wes, <laughs> what do you do? She's like, I know what you do, but how do I tell people what you do? <laughs>
1: So I usually tell yeah. people
3: I'm a I'm, I work for a national nonprofit that does itinerant speaking in related to interfaith dialogue and worldview issues.
2: It's, oh, that's a that's yeah. a good one. It's not perfect, that's, but that's it's the always this, yeah. <laughs> none of them are perfect. That's the problem. No, none of them. <laughs> it's always the stretch.
3: You know, years ago when I was working for I was doing apologetics speaking for power to change. I was in an airport and it was like I don't know, like three or four in the morning. It was a layover. I was in Calgary. And it was me and like, the only other guy in the entire airport. And uh, we we're both awake. And he said, Hey, what do you do for work? Uh, and I was trying to explain to him what I do. And I wasn't doing a very good job. And he was like, staring at me confused. And he went, Oh, religion. Okay, good money in religion. And I looked at him. And I said, um, <laughs> I said, only if you're corrupt. And uh, he, uh, he thought that was pretty funny. But yeah that's that's i always struggle with that question when people ask me because on the fly i'm like
2: uh what i'm uh well because we we tend to wear a number of hats yeah we tend to we tend to do things like pastoring itinerant speaking uh teaching you know we just we do we do a lot of things so just yeah it's really hard to succinctly go hey here's what i do in a way that's understandable public
3: educators related to christianity i don't know (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know, (laughs) as difficult as it is to kind of succinctly describe what it is that we do, once people kind of get the taste of it, right, actually, we get down to business and start talking about certain worldview issues, immediately people see, okay, so this this is what you do. I see why this is important. That's often how it's come down to for me. And so, for example, when we talk about sin, Right. That's a great, as soon as we start talking about sin or if we use the word evil, people immediately understand. Mm. Yeah. We do need to talk about that. Don't we? Um, you know, how yeah. do you make sense of this thing? And
2: one of the things that's important for people to actually appreciate about apologetics and, and I'm saying this because I'm learning to appreciate it more and more is that this has been a part of the Christian tradition from the very beginning uh, mm-hmm. Early church fathers saw themselves as apologists, and even when you look at just Christian thinkers throughout history, even people like John Locke. This might shock a lot of people. He wrote a book called "The Reasonableness uh, of a God" or "The Reasonableness of Christianity." Something like I'm forgetting the exact title here. But he even John Locke even saw himself as an apologist. Even you know you see this Mm -hmm. with people like you wouldn't even expect, but it's been a long part of our tradition. And I, I for one am honored to be a part of it yeah
1: yeah well let's get down to some apologeticking. Uh so last <laughs> week we some apologizing started a two-parter <laughs> 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 i know a very canadian discipline right yes. um no it has nothing to do with saying sorry let, um, let
2: me let me jump into things here steve uh because yeah. this is something that I think Christians need to struggle with when they deal with sin and when they think about sin, whether or not you're a Christian or not. In fact, because the reality is culture understands evil. People understand evil. People have always understood the concept of morality and that Mm -hmm. bad things, you know, people who do bad things uh, deserve justice right they that law is good now, of course you'll get some people who will try to you know play lip service to anarchy or lawlessness, sure, but in reality you, you no one can live uh live like that consistently it's it by and large, people understand that evil exists, people can do evil, and that you should mm-hmm. do something about it, right you, yeah. you know what I'm saying We understand that as as a society, but when you think about it theologically, it raises lots of questions with regards to what does what should God do about evil and about injustice?
1: sin I think the first thing we can say is that everybody recognizes this really obvious fact or intuitive fact that sin or evil, if you want to use that word, has to be dealt with. Something has to be done about it.
2: Well, Would you can, say? Yeah. And let me just, maybe just back up again, take a really start at this, because I, I just sometimes worry that you lose, that we lose people at, like with these trains of thought of what we're talking about here. So if we go back to what we've been talking about that Sin evil is dealing with broken relationship. So then we're talking about two concepts. We're talking about actual if you're gonna talk about evil, you're you have to talk about good. That we're we're dealing with these two things, not in the sense that they're these two realities fighting against each other in some sort of eastern idea, but the the Christian worldview is that there is goodness, there is right relationship. Mm God created people for right relationship with himself and with one another, and people broke relationship with God and broke relationship with one another, and they created a corrupt or counterfeit relationship, what we call sin or evil. And and so now to ask what you're saying, Steve, is now, what is Mm -hmm. God going to do about that? What what is God going to do about this broken relationship? How is he going to mend that?
1: Yeah and we we see that in our own human relationships too. So if I have some kind of a fallout with Wes, let's say, right? Uh what we want to see is we don't just want to leave it there, hopefully, right? Wes, right?
3: Yeah, we have lots of fallout. We don't fallout. want to just leave it there. We're constantly falling out <laughs> yeah. in and out, and up and
0: down.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it just can't make up our minds. Uh, but we I think everybody recognizes that brokenness, that broken relationship, kind of almost demands to be, I got to be careful how I say this, but it almost has this kind of demand on our conscious conscience, if you will, for it to be rectified, for it to be reconciled. We don't want to just leave that unattended, if you actually care about this relationship, especially.
2: Well, we right? know. So... Uh- that it won't reconcile itself, right? It's yeah. only gonna fester right. and, and get more broken. It doesn't mend over time by leaving it alone, sort of idea.
3: Well, and on right. top of that, that the forgiveness that is required in mending that relationship is going to be costly. Like forgiveness is always costly. And mm-hmm. even if it's something very minor in terms of Steve and I having a personal disagreement, there's going to be maybe personal fallout or uh, emotional fallout from that. And forgiveness is always going to have some sort of cost to it this is one of the things that my muslim friends are constantly pushing back on christianity and the idea of christ being the sacrifice Mm -hmm. uh, of penal substitutionary atonement and we know there are even christians who or people who would call themselves christians um who would push back on. why don't you take a moment to define that penal substitutionary atonement so so it's the idea that the penalty, the penal, is uh, not given to us, that it's substituted by Christ on the cross, and because of that, we are made in right relationship. There's atonement, there's at mint and uh, brought back into proper relationship with God. And so that is an act of justice, because the just punishment, which we deserve, is put on Christ, and because of that, mercy, which is not getting what we do deserve, which is that right punishment, is being dueled out. And then on top of that, God extends grace, which is different than mercy, often confused with mercy. But mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So if mercy is given out, we don't we don't get the punishment that we do deserve. But if grace is given, that's becoming a, a child, a, a daughter or son of God, which we we don't, God doesn't owe us that. But in light of that whole penal substitutionary atonement, he adopts us as children of God.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, this, uh, is a challenge for some people, for some, some Christians don't like this because they would argue it makes God, a divine child abuser mm-hmm. is language that I, I've heard, you know, used you, the, and they'll say, you know, it's, it's weird or wrong that God would, uh, you know, abuse or kill, you know, his his son, and that this then is going to lead to a re- our restoration. And so I, I think that yeah. this is an important idea that we've got to talk about, because this could apply not only to Jesus, but this can also apply to us. So are we, what kind of a relationship then do we have with God? If, if I don't get the right theology, or if I don't make the right decisions in my life, uh, God then is going to, Instead of abusing Jesus, God's going to abuse or God's going to condemn me sort of idea so this this is something important for us to get after
1: yeah, yeah, and it, just one more thing to add to that while we're on this subject, often penal substitution is also kind of misconstrued really uh so this is you'll hear this from Muslims a lot too and and from uh, some within the Christian community, like how is it, for example, mm. that if I've done something wrong to Wes, that Andy should step in and he he pay the penalty and all of a sudden our relationship between me and Wes, we're, we're all hunky-dory. Like how does that work? Or I'm just like, okay, there's, you know, in the wise words of Luke Skywalker, almost every word in that sentence is wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. But like I said, this is a bit of a miscontrol. Yeah. Does Skywalker say that? I don't I don't remember. Yeah, in the new series. Oh, okay. And oh, a lot of people don't like the new series. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let that one slide for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Can you guess what we've been watching in our family lately? <laughs> um but on that note, yeah, that's another misunderstanding of penal substitution that we'll probably have to discuss as we go. But kind of bringing this back to the idea of mending broken relationships. So why don't you guys tell our listeners, how is it that, how does this work, basically, that that Christ taking on our penalty? Well, you know, how does this deal with the issue of sin? and, And this is what I was talking about before, when my Muslim friends will push back, because they will
3: say, well, God just forgives. God can just forgive. And I think what they fail to realize is that component of how costly forgiveness is. Because I would yeah. actually say that the when you study the Islamic sources, when you study the, the Hadith and the Quran and some of the other, um, the tafsir, the, the authoritative commentaries, what you find is that the God of Islam is very merciful. In fact, every chapter of the Quran except for one has this phrase, bismillah, um, the God, the most benevolent, the most merciful. It's a very inherent component to who the God of Islam is, but he forgives at the expense of his law. And so in that sense, he's merciful, but the expense of his justice, his justice is not actually fulfilled. And I think at that point, his justice and his holy law is sacrificed. I don't think that's what we see with Christianity. And what some of the pushback on penal substitutionary atonement and this accusation of divine child abuse misses is that Christ, time and time again, says, you know, John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. Christ knew what he was doing. He wasn't being sent as a sacrifice by the Father under some sort of duress. Jesus knew exactly what he intended to do, that the Son of Man has come to be a ransom for many. And that is exactly what he did, and so that doesn't necessarily uh, address the question that you're asking Steve about sort of the the mechanism by which um, forgiveness and justification and penal substitutionary atonement uh, go out. but I think what it's inherently important, especially when we're talking with maybe people who push back on the idea or our Muslim friends um who who they have a misunderstanding of the holiness of God and why forgiveness requires not God sending an innocent to die on our behalf, but God taking the penalty upon himself, the only one who actually could handle the wrath of God, and that being able to uh do allow mercy and grace
2: yeah As i just to add to that it, it it's worth noting that when we're when we see a government doing this ju- not enacting justice but just forgiveness we we that's a that's a we see that as a corrupt government in fact uh or if we see it the opposite where there's no forgiveness and it's all justice we see that as a problem too as a corrupt government or as a uh you know, not, not a good government in the sense that we understand that there is a challenge at play within morality where we all desire mercy, right? But yet we all desire justice simultaneously. And so it raises this challenge of, well, how do you get both? And if God is both merciful and God's both also equally just, Well, how how do you get mercy and justice playing out? And that's where Christianity is quite unique. So then, if we we look at this from a Christian perspective, what we're saying is, when you and I break relationship with one another, ultimately, that relational break is primarily taking place between us and God. This goes back to that theology of people being created by God— and that people are not only created by God but they're made in God's image. That means then that people are if you will uh the property of God, not in a not I don't say that like in a negative sense, but that they belong to God. And thus when it's
1: kind of like um they're part of God's fam or the— they I shouldn't say that they're part of God's family, but only in the sense that, yes, God created them. They bear his image, so they belong to God. But uh, we who have been adopted as sons and daughters, we belong to God's family. But everybody else still bear that image of God.
2: Right. This actually gets bared out by an early church father by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, where he actually gives one of the first recorded arguments against slavery, where he says, who do you think you are, you know, to buy and sell you know uh, being created by God and he he, meet, and he and he teases out in two ways first he's like uh they don't belong to you first of all and second of all uh how much money do you think the image of God is worth yeah and and I think that that he's getting at the basic concept that we're dealing with here that pe- people are uh in in a relationship with God as both their creator and as divine image bearers. And that has implications.
3: Well, I think that's related to this question of justice is every abolitionist movement throughout history has been a Christian one. Whether you're talking about the Cappadocian Fathers and Gregory of Nyssa, which was really one of the first movements, or you have Augustine, who is arguing against slavery, and they're actually raiding slave ships and releasing slaves. And Augustine himself says, I don't know if this is right, but I feel like it's more right than it's wrong. Um, and I mean, I'm paraphrasing Augustine there. But, and, and then the abolitionist movement in, in Britain with Wilberforce and others, which mm-hmm. spread in the United States, it was only ever a Christian movement. And it was because A, they were reading scripture and they were seeing that every individual, every human being, despite their gender, their race, their ethnicity is created in God's image. And it is, a, it is to blaspheme the image of God to try to sell and buy people And that Mm -hmm. we care about justice. God cares about justice enough to send his only son. And so we should care about justice within its biblical categories enough to fight for fellow human beings.
1: Yeah. In other words, when you love God, like how can you not love the people that has his image on it? Right, and and it is him that you love, and so I, I think that kind of connects again. I mean, we're just rehashing that idea, Andy, that you brought up that this is primarily about God and us. When so, that gets set right, it's going to get set right horizontally as well. Or and and that's a good
2: that's a good point. In other words, broken and right relationship uh, go both ways. So, for example, when somebody loves my my child, that that reflects on my relationship with that person as uh, equally as when somebody wrongs my child, right? Mm -hmm. When you, when you wrong that relationship, it, there is, there's ramifications that you're breaking relationship, uh, but you're also, uh, you know, honor, you can also honor that relationship uh, as well. So in other words, when we love people, it reflects, it, it reflects on our love for God. And when we don't love people, you know, it negatively uh, reflects on our relationship with God because and because of this you know that God is that locus of morality of right relationship that when we break relationship with people we're fundamentally breaking relationship with God this is what I'm trying to get after mm-hmm. and th- mm-hmm. this then means that that as Jesus is coming to reconcile that relationship he is justified in doing so because it is. First and foremost, God, that that relationship has been severed
1: right and and when the cross comes into the picture, like we said earlier, justice, the requirements of justice and mercy meet there right and that and that um, see th- this illustration I've mentioned this a number of times, or at least the way of explaining this I've never. Forgotten. Kevin Lewis from Biola University, who was one of my teachers, I'm sure you remember him too, Andy. Um, he kind of put it this way: like, think about forgiveness and how that takes place. Or how does forgiveness work? Forgiveness takes place when the offended party bears the harm done by the offense and chooses not to hold it against the offender. And that's exactly what happens on the cross is that the offended party, God himself, bears that harm of sin and chooses not to hold it against the offended, Oh, sort the offending party, which is us, right? And so here you see that the, the penalty is paid and now forgiveness takes place and now reconciliation takes place there.
2: So so let's just then tease that out then when we, when what we're talking about here, when we mean by reconciliation, right, is that the relationship has has been restored, but like any relationship, there's ongoing work to be done in the restoration of that relationship that we refer to as sanctification. Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter three as that, yes, you're made in the image of God, but you are being renewed in that image. You are, you are. You restored, know, yeah. yeah, being restored to reflect that right relationship in its fullness. So, in other mm-hmm. words, a relationship can be restored, but it's not in, it's not in necessarily its fullness, right? That takes that takes time, as yeah. as that a, an effort to see that relationship fully restored. And, and and so we see a similar thing taking place then between not only our relationship with God. But our relationship with one another that that ultimately, I would argue, is what Christianity is getting after when it talks about the church, that the church is not a building, of course. It's a people that are living and seeking to live and right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. And this is where a lot of Christians will miss key Aspects of Christianity when they divorce it from this relational concept, such as baptism, where you and I are baptized, which is this symbolic demonstration of our uh, life and, and death and reconciliation in in Christ, that, that that our relationship's been restored and that we're making this uh, public uh, identification with Christ, or take uh, communion, that's quite a significant one, that for a lot of people again you can lose the symbolism here that communion is a meal that you are that you're having at, at a dinner table with bread and and juice represent you know representing not only a meal but representing what Christ has done for you and that this is reconciling not only you with God, but it's reconciling you with one another. And so Paul says, make sure that you're not in broken relationship with the family of God when you come to the table, right? Because that's what this table is all about. It's about reconciliation and that we're a family.
3: It's a family meal. And we see that right at the beginning. There's a document called the Didache, which comes from the end of the first century. And it's kind of this manual for new converts to Christianity. And in the Didache, it links the fact that those who participate in the Lord's Supper, in Communion, I mean the word Eucharist. I think has kind of been uh, it's kind of been um, associated with Roman Catholicism, but Eucharist, uh, Eucharisto, just means Thanksgiving in Greek. It's a meal of Thanksgiving, and the Didache specifically links that with. You need to be within the family of God. And specifically, it says, don't do it if you're not baptized. Because in the early church, the, the idea of a Christian not being baptized didn't make any sense. It's what it's what you do. Mm-hmm. You become a Christian, you get baptized. And I think the added layer of complexity to that is that we worship a God who is relational, who is, exists in a set of living, ro- loving relationships. And I actually think you cannot understand the cross without the Trinity. It doesn't make any sense Agreed. because the whole concept of atonement, of being made right with God becomes irrelevant unless you understand that the at the center of the forgiveness of sinners at the cross is the center point of history, coming down to the father, sending his one and only son and empowering those whom he gives faith with the Holy Spirit, the gospel and the whole Christian worldview is then predicated on the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, we come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so the act of substitutionary atonement, the act of making us right with God is inherently Trinitarian, inherently relational. And then its its component of practicality of telling people the good news, the gospel, is also relational because we want people to know that right relationship and we want them to come to the family of god
1: by the way that's a great apologetic against jehovah's witnesses yeah you no, know, when they say it's, it truly is it's, yeah. and i didn't I mean, make that, that up
3: that's john owen yeah. um trinitarian unity uh, in the atonement it is he came up with that idea or at least yeah. he kind of coined it but you're exactly right uh, mm-hmm. uh steve forgot your name for a second um you're you're right Steve. <laughs> Thanks a yeah, lot. No Wes. problem. This is this goes back to all these uh these um broken relationships you and I have in our uh analogies. Yeah, the falling, the falling outs. out. falling
1: <laughs> out. This is a great uh contrast between sin and how sin is rectified, right? Because sin is is very much about division. It's about br- breaking things apart and the solution that we see is as we are reconciled to god we're reconciled to one another there's unity right so even in mentioning baptism and eucharist i mean what what does what does baptism signify well baptism signifies that you're united to Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what it symbolizes. So there's the the unity side of things. And now you are part of God's family that you were supposed to belong to in the first place. And now you're sharing a meal, right? Mm -hmm. Or having a family meal with other believers. That's again, it's a sense of... So that's why I think it's really important that we pay attention to Jesus when he says, you know, they will know that you are my disciples. By the way, you love one another, yeah. and so uh, yeah. this is unity is really important. Yeah,
2: you here. know, Steve, you, this is a great point and and a good segue into what I think we should talk about next. So let me just say a couple things first about what you said that I think are important for people to appreciate. One is notice that sin, evil, is broken relationship, and how does God mend that broken relationship through through the brokenness? So. So sin evil leads to death, right? Death is is the ultimate aspect of of broken relationship, right? We have we break we are separated from God and we're separated from one another and it's through Jesus's death and through his resurrection by defeating death, by defeating evil, by defeating broken relationship that we have the potential to res- have our relationship with God restored and and our relationship with one another as as we walk with God in, in that. However, this leads to an aspect of sin and evil that I think are difficult and that we need to think about. And that is the judgment part of sin and evil. What hap- you know, God loves people, and his desire is for people to be restored into right relationship with God and with one another. But what happens when people remain in their brokenness? And this is something that, uh, that I have brought up before and that I, I was talking to you, know, to you, Wes, about what I was saying. This, this, is, a ch- this, this is something I think we got to think about or else we can get the wrong idea about God because it could very easily come across. Christianity could come across to somebody as though God's saying, hey, listen, love me or else I'm going to punish you. Whereas what I'm saying is, and, and this is where I'm wondering your guys' thoughts on this, as I would say, no, God has come and said to people, I've created you to be in a right relationship with me. I've created you because I love you, and I want to be in a right relationship with you. People have broken that relationship. Adam and Eve broke that relationship, and now they removed themselves from right relationship with God, and I would argue that people— First, starting with Adam and Eve, and then being born into that broken relationship, that people have put themselves into the
1: crosshairs of God's judgment and the crosshairs of God's justice. In Genesis three, you see that reaction that Adam and Eve have when they're confronted by God. Right? It's blame shifting, Mm -hmm. right? And as we blame shift, really, you know, we're it, it. Adam and Eve were in in a sense, blaming God, right? Well, Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman that you put here with me, right? So he's not just blaming Eve, but he's blaming God too, right? Uh, Eve, what have you done? What the serpent you put here (laughs) deceived me, right? And so I think that just blame shifting is still going on uh, when I hear some of my friends say, you know, uh, Described it exactly like you did, as though God created us and we're this kind of, you know, morally blank slates, that God just arbitrarily says, "Okay, follow my rules, or I'm going to burn you in hell forever," kind of thing. I'm just like, no, I think you're 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 started on the wrong foot already.
2: And let me let me bring something up uh, along with that. I'm curious. We'll see how this how this uh, we'll see what Wes does with this. Uh, but because some people, Steve will will say that blame shifting, you can make a similar move to God. Some people, and some embrace it. Some within the Reformed mm-hmm. tradition embrace it. And so I want to read uh, something actually from J.I. Packer uh, that I think's worth thinking about for those that hold to more of a Reformed position. And, and I'm curious how how Wes interacts with this. And so I, I'm reading Packer, who uh, who says, uh, and it, by the way, it's a work he did on theodicy and. Theodicy is just talking about, you know, your belief for why God uh, allows evil. Um, theodicy being two words: God and justice. So you're you're like, is God justified in, how is He justified in allowing evil, sort of thing. But but he says this: he says some Calvinists envision God uh, permissively decreeing sin for the purpose of displaying in just uh, for the purpose of displaying in justly saving some from their their sin and justly damning others for and in their sin. But none of this is biblically certain, he says. And then he goes on to say, the safest way in theodicy is to leave God's permission of sin and moral evil as a mystery and to reason from the good achieved in redemption. How, How does that sit with you guys? Yeah, I, I and do you understand what he's getting at? I think so.
3: I mean, Jay Packer was a reformed Anglican, so he's very much.
2: I, I know that's why I'm. Re- that's why I'm reading from him. Yeah,
3: and I mean, th- there's there's a, a various like uh, continuum of of reformed thinkers, um, but I think what he's articulating there is true in the sense that we have moral agency, like we do have the capacity in that two things can be true at the exact same time, and it can still be an aspect of a divine mystery. know, Pharaoh was held responsible for not letting Moses and the Israelites go because Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that his glory might be accomplished through the plagues and the releasing of Israel. Those two things are true at the exact same time and not in conflict with one another. Now, how those actually work out in the mechanism of... World order and salvation. I don't. I don't claim to actually know. But what I do know from Scripture is that we do have agency. Our sin is on our backs, and actually, that's in Ezekiel. At one point, the there's this um, there's this section where the Israelites are trying to blame God for their sin. Where I think the saying is some of the effect of like, our, our fathers ate sour grapes, and our uh, our teeth have been put on edge. And God is like, no, 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 you can't blame your grandfathers for your sins. And they basically, they're accusing God of, you know, holding the parents' sin to the third and the fourth generation. Um, they're, they're taking a Bible verse out of context and then saying, well, our sin is actually your fault, God. And God, God's response is, no, you are responsible for your sin. You are a morally uh, autonomous um individual who has culpability for your wrong. And so I I think that that's yeah what, what Packer's saying there um makes sense to me because there is an aspect of divine mystery in what goes on within sin and punishment and that doesn't mean that God is not uh orchestrating the universe sovereignly but it does mean that we are responsible and culpable for our sins entirely.
1: Yeah and I would just add to that that it's not as though God is giddy about punishing sinners, no. no. Right? Uh, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, "As as surely as I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that so that's they the exact should same turn section. from their evil ways." That's yeah, That's the and, end of the live. section
3: that I was um, quoting without reference. Right.
1: So it's it's <laughs> not. <laughs> so so it's not as though because we do have that that sense, right? Like because yeah. when uh for example in the book of revelation you see the the saints the the martyrs that are crying out to god when will you carry out your justice and from that sometimes people infer that you know like god is really giddy about torturing people in hell forever kind of thing um i'm always reminded of this sort of i think that misses the 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 heart of the father i remember very clearly if my older brother uh was getting chastised by my dad, and I'm standing around making fun of him, guess who my dad is going to come after next? Mm-hmm. It's me, because when my father is chastising my brother, he's not taking any joy in this. He does it because he has to, and he, because he loves my brother, and he needs to be corrected. But if I take a joy in my brother's suffering at that moment, my father is going to say, you miss the point. That's not, I'm not doing this for your entertainment. I do this because I have to, because I love my son, right? So I, I, I get that sense when people say, well, you know, God, as though God just kind of arbitrarily chooses people and then takes pleasure in, in torturing them forever. I'm like, no, that's not the father that I know from scripture.
3: Well, and I think we can see that in, in the, the self-giving of Jesus himself, right? Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush Jesus. And yet, uh, I think it, it likewise grieved God. It was his plan. It was uh, the sovereignly, I mean, both Peter and John in Revelation say uh, in different ways that before the foundations of the world, the world were lain, the lamb was slain. And so it wasn't a contingency plan. God didn't create the world and then Adam and Eve sinned and he went, oops, now I got to come up with some way to fix all this. (laughs) It it was the plan to glorify the Godhead from eternity past. And so what we see is that it it was both God's good and divine will to do that. But there's no doubt that it grieved the father to pour out his wrath on the son. Those two things... Exist. And-
2: See, this gets back, yeah, to that that quote by Packer in raising intention to ideas then. On the yeah. one hand, God does not desire evil. Uh, God desires good and has desired for us to be in right relationship with him. That is his desire. But also at the same time, it was God's desire to deal with evil through mm-hmm. his son and what that would require to bring about what? Right relationship right to bring about good that we could live again in right relationship with god and and with one another and so you have to you have to hold these things in tension because if you don't you're going to get the you're going to come away with the wrong view of god
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think especially um, with sin the way that paul describes it in in romans 623 when he says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The idea that's almost communicated there is that we are going to work day in day out for our paycheck, which is death. We are we are purposefully trying to earn without the grace of God, without the the gift of His Holy Spirit. We are purposefully and um, intentionally trying to earn our sin in. Kind of rebellion to God, and that's what sin is, right? Is that rebellion? It's that broken. We don't understand how significant the relationship is that's broken, and so we almost do things to create more rifts and more cracks and more a distance in that relationship. And whether we realize it or not, we're working, we're striving for that day
1: in and day out. Mm-hmm. And speaking of striving, because that this really connects well with some of the other aspects or layers of sin is you mentioned death right so death wasn't part of god's original intent for creation that comes because sin entered the world and one of the things that the the cross accomplishes is that death is defeated Right, and, and we read and, that in First Corinthians fifteen fifty
2: five. Steve, sorry to uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but uh, just to maybe we should clarify what we mean by death. In that, God, by do we mean? I th- I think we would be more specific and say human death.
1: Right. No, yeah. I I that that's a whole another conversation, but yeah, uh, well, it, yes, I do mean by that human death. Um. But this death comes in, not just physical death, right? There's spiritual death that comes with it, Um, and so uh, at the cross, then this gets reversed because now death no longer has hold over us. Just as we're united in His death, which the baptism symbolizes, but it also has the other side to it. We're united because we're united in with Jesus in His death. We're also united with Him in His His resurrection. Death has been defeated.
2: So this is an um, important point, yep. though, just to highlight quickly, and that is, again, this is an area where I find some Christians will misunderstand what what Christian teaching is on this because they'll get this idea then that heaven, right, is where I live forever, that, that you know, you get this wrong understanding of what we mean by death. The, the idea, again, if we're going back to sin and evil, we're talking about broken relationship and God seeking to mend that broken relationship and if that's the case it means then of course and and we've talked about this in other podcasts and that Jesus talks about that heaven is right relationship it's it's not this idea that you're going to be just living forever
1: right and this is really important because nobody wants to actually just live on and on forever and what we're looking for is that wholeness that shalom that takes place between people that that's what we mean shalom right it's not just peace as in you know the the absence of violence and war i mean all you have to do is look at the korean peninsula to know that even though there isn't an act of war going on there is no shalom there there is no peace there so the kind of peace that we're looking for is that that wholeness uh, and in fact jesus when he talked about eternal life he very uh, definitively described it in terms of to know you and the to The Father and to know the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Right. So he he couched it in very relational terms.
2: If if you've watched the TV show The Good Place, then keep listening. Mm. If you haven't, pause here because this is gonna be a spoiler alert. But of course, the the TV show starts off with them actually not in the good place, but they're in the bad place. And as the series goes on, they go into the good place, which of course is this idea of heaven, but they uh If you watch it to the very end, they get bored in heaven. This led to a great conversation with my boys uh, around Mm -hmm. heaven because they all chose annihilation. And not all of them, but virtually all of them choose to—they're like, ah, just living forever is boring, and I'll I'll just choose death. So they end up annihilating themselves. But I'm like, see, this is a great misunderstanding of what Christianity is about because Christianity isn't about this idea that you're just going to be living forever. It's that death is defeated. Evil is defeated. Sin is defeated. Broken relationship is defeated. And see, this is something that we have a very difficult time appreciating the depths of its glory and the depths Mm. of its horror. Do do you understand what I'm saying? And maybe something that we won't fully understand until we're in eternity. I I, I think that's absolutely the case. I think we get glimpses of it, though, here. I think when... When you're either you have these moments with your children or your spouse or a best friend that I do yeah. think we get glimpses of heaven in. So I think what we're talking about with the
3: idea of sin creating this brokenness and then God stepping in through his son, the second person of the Trinity, what that means is that we have peace with God. So we see that in Romans five one, And that relationship that's broken by sin is reestablished. So that's the first thing. There's a reestablishment of relationship. Then there is a sure and certain hope of a future beyond this present world order. That's Romans five two. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, uh, in a previous podcast, we talked about the hope of the resurrection in context to Easter. That hope is tied into the solution to the sin. The third thing I think is the assurance that we have that's based in the first place, not on feelings, but on the truth that as believers, we are righteous before God through Christ's obedience and blood. That's Romans 8. 30. So that outworking of that we have promised, we, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved for those works. And then we're adopted into God's family. We we are made children of God. We are given that act of grace because of the justice and mercy of God. We see that in Romans eight fifteen and Galatians 4, 5. And because of that, we belong to one covenant community. And specifically as us, I mean, I guess I'm speaking for myself. Um, I don't think Andy or uh, Steve or Troy, for that matter, are Jews. So um, as Gentiles, we don't need to become Jews in order to join the group. Regulations 3.29. We don't need to become part of the old covenant in order to become part of the new covenant. So the membership of the church is open to all who trust in Jesus Christ alone for the acceptance uh, with God. And that that's a liberating message for those who are weighed down with the burden of guilt and despair over their sinful state. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. And so when doubts and fear arise and accusations are made, we as Christians can remember it is God who justifies. So who's to condemn, right? Eight uh, Romans 8, 33 to 34. And so the biblical idea of this right relationship, this atonement that's being made, it gives all the glory to God and leaves the justified sinner uh, lo- lost in wonder and in love and in praise. And we see not just how sinful we are, but we see how great God is, right? The, the um, Anglican liturgy um, after the corporate confession says, you know, we are friends, we are great sinners, but God is a greater savior. And I think on that note, that allows us, when we look at this grand picture of fall and redemption and restoration, to be able to put in context how and why we can love God and how and why we can love people.
1: Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you for that summary, Wes. Uh, I hope you, our listeners, enjoyed this podcast, this two parter on understanding sin. Uh, You know, we do pay attention to what our listeners and viewers are saying. If there is a topic that you would like us to address, feel free to reach out to us at info at We can't guarantee that we will deal with this topic on the podcast, but we do pay attention. Thank you for joining us this week at this week's edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Follow us on all our social media platforms. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, love God, love people. The AC Podcast. For the love of God, love people.